Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. I uh, wish you guys a happy Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, glad you guys uh, were able to make it to church this morning. Uh, and, and in lieu of all your extensive preparations for the game, uh, I'm glad that you were able to be here. Uh, we are excited uh, for the game, praying for uh, safety and health of all the players uh, and, and looking forward to just a, a good time with the game. So uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Continuing on our series in the book of Ecclesiastes as we are looking at uh, this uh, Solomon's pursuit of meaning, purpose, and value under the sun. Looking at, looking at this world, looking at life under heaven, and, and looking at everything that we can do, everything we can learn, and trying to find meaning, purpose, and value here. Uh, and up to this point, first two chapters in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon has come up empty, right? He hasn't found meaning, purpose, and value, any lasting meaning, purpose, and value in the things that we can do and the things we can learn. And, and this morning, you can see the, the frustration growing in Solomon. You can see the, the, the anger mounting, and, and we see that a little bit in Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to be, uh, we'll be talking about the whole chapter this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is what Solomon writes. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time for embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what will happen to the children of man? What, for what will happen to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies another. They all have the same breath and man is, has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All who are dust, all are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man will go upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let me pray for us. We'll get in the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for the uh, passages that are easy to interpret and, and celebrate, and the passages that are difficult, uh, the passages that we have to, to work with and and think through and dig deep into to understand, Father, I thank you for, 
for all of your word, every bit of it, God, that it strengthens us, that it encourages us, that it, that it, that it grows us and shapes us and molds us in the image of Jesus. God, if we are willing to, to have ears that are willing to hear what you have to say to us and hearts that are ready to apply it. So, Father, I pray that that would be true for us this morning. God, that we would have our ears open to hear what it is that you're saying to us, and we would have our hearts ready to apply it, God, that we would be excited to know what you have to say to us, God, and we would live it out, God, that we would leave here this morning better than when we came, that you would shape and mold us in the image of Jesus because of our time in the Word this morning. Father, we love you and praise you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Part of wisdom means doing the right thing at the right time, right? Choosing the, making the right decision when you need to make it. Uh, in 1999, uh, in, the early, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was an online company called Excite.com. Uh, it was a really popular website, Excite.com, really popular place for people to go. And in 1999, this little web company named Google approached Excite.com with an offer to buy Google for a million dollars. Uh, and the negotiators decided that a million dollars was too much, and they actually talked Google down to $750,000. So Excite.com had the opportunity to buy Google in 1999 for $750,000. And the CEO and the leadership at Excite.com decided that they didn't need Google, that, that, that they, they were better off without it, and so they passed on the deal to buy Google for $750,000. Today, just in recent years, Google passed $1 trillion in value, uh, and so that would have been a really good investment. Uh, and on top of that, so uh, Excite.com was sold in 2004 for $500 million, which is a really good sum, right? Although, fun fact, that's the exact amount of money that Google makes in a day. So, <laughs> so, they, so they really missed out on that investment, right? Wisdom is making the right decision at the right time. I'll give you another one. Uh, in 1867, Alexander Graham Bell approached Western Union with the patents for the telephone and offered to sell them to Western Union for $100,000. Right? It made sense because Western Union ran the telegraph. All the telegraph machines, they had kind of a, a virtual monopoly on it, so they had, hundreds of, they had over 100,000 mile of, miles of cable already, uh, already in place, all the infrastructure in place. They made sense to buy the telephone. And so Alexander Graham Bell approached them for $100,000. They could buy the patent to the telephone. And the, the CEO of Western Union said, no one's going to talk to each other on the phone. Why would we need the telephone when we can already clearly communicate to each other through telegraphs? Like, why would the telephone be necessary? So, so Bell went and started his own telephone company, and two years later, by 1869, that telephone patent was worth $25 million. And later on, the company that Bell started eventually broke off into companies like AT&T and Bell South, so major corporations. Obviously, Western Union missed out. <laughs> Wisdom is making the right decision at the right time. And you and I want to make sure that we make the right decisions at the right time, right? We want to be people that, that if we're faced with the opportunity to buy Google for a million dollars in 1999, that we take it, right? Or if we, we, if we have the opportunity to buy the, the, the telephone patent in 1867, or we have the opportunity to, to pick a good college, or we, we make the decision to, of who we marry, we make the decision on, on how to raise your kids, you make the decision on what career path to choose. When you're making those decisions, we want to be people that are sure that we make the right decision at the right time, that we're, we, we have confidence that we are, we are choosing the right path. But the reality is that you and I, our vision is just as murky as the CEO of Excite.com or the CEO of Western Union, right? We can't see the future any more than they could. Solomon, in his pursuit of, of meaning, purpose, and value in life, has stumbled upon this 
realization that, that part of the emptiness of life, part of the hollowness of our decisions, is the fact that you and I can't see the future. This is the problem that Solomon has stumbled upon. We are trapped in the present. You and I can't see the future, and we only imperfectly remember the past. And so we can't, make, we can't know that we're making the right decision at the right time. We can't know, like the Excite.com CEO could not have known that Google would become a trillion-dollar company. No matter how good his instincts were, no matter how much he trusted his gut, nobody would have predicted that Google would be a trillion-dollar company, right? The, the, no matter how great the technology was, the Western Union CEO couldn't have predicted what telephones would become. We can't see the future, and so we're making decisions when we're faced with options and opportunities. We can't know that we're making the right decision because we are trapped in the present. Let's follow along in, in Ecclesiastes 3 with, with Solomon's argument. He kind of outlines his argument, his, this, this realization, and what the implications are for us. And so let's, let's follow along with Solomon's argument here in Ecclesiastes 3. The first point that Solomon makes in this discussion is that everything has a proper time and place, but we can't know what it is. Everything has a proper time and place, but that's, that's beyond our grasp and our understanding to know. Uh, the, 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 this chapter starts with probably the most famous poem in the book of Ecclesiastes, beginning in verse 1. Everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then he goes on and lists a bunch of pairs. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to, be plucked, uh, to pluck up what's planted, verse 7, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. This is a, a list of pairs that, that, that basically symbolize that there's a perfect time and place for everything, that God has created it so that there is a right time and a right place for everything. And we know that this is a descriptive list, not a prescriptive list. Like Solomon is not writing this to say, hey, make sure you guys do the right thing at the right time. And we know that it's descriptive, that there's, he's just saying, hey, there is a right time and place for things. Because look at verse 2, the very first pair he mentions. There's a time to be born and a time to die. All right, so Solomon's not saying, hey, make sure you're born at the right time. And then he's not following it up with, make sure you die when you should. Like he's, that's not, <laughs> that's not his point. The point Solomon's making in this chapter, er, in this poem, is that there's a time for everything under heaven. That God has created, so, it cr created it so that there's a right time and place for everything that occurs. That, that there is a right decision to make, that there's a right thing to do in every situation. Like, there are right and wrong choices. There are right and wrong uh, decisions. There's, a, there's the, the right decision of buying Google for a fraction of a penny versus the wrong decision of letting it go and watching a trillion-dollar company slip out of your grasp, right? There's a right time and place to do things and a wrong time and place to do things. And that's what Solomon is pointing out, that under heaven, as God has created the world, he's created it so that there's a right time and place for everything. There's a right time and place for everything that we can do. We want to make sure, again, that we're making the right decisions. We instinctively know this. Right? That th we know that, that when we are faced with a decision, we have to make a choice, and we want to make the right one. And what Solomon is pointing out is that God has made the world so that there is a right choice. There are better decisions than others. There are some choices that you can make that are, that are superior to other decisions. There's a right time and place for everything. And as, as much as we quote this poem, as much as we hear it, and as, as, as positive as it sounds, this is really not a positive poem. 
within its context, this is not a happy poem that Solomon is writing. And we know this for two reasons. Number one, it's in Ecclesiastes, where apparently nothing is happy, right? <laughs> John, John is, is serious on that. Uh, but the other reason we know that it's not a, a, a predominantly happy poem is because look at, look at how Solomon follows it up in verse 9. The next thing he says is, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, that should sound familiar to us. The reason it should sound familiar to us is because it's the same language from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's the exact same wording that Solomon used at the beginning of the book, right as he launched into his discussion on the fact that our work, the efforts, the things we can learn, the things we can do, it's all meaningless and empty and void of value. Right? And so Solomon is, is bringing that back up here at the end of this poem. He says this poem that sounds really nice. There's a right time and right place for everything. And then he brings us right back to the conversation he's been having with the book of Ecclesiastes where he says, and everything is meaningless and everything is empty. Everything is purposeless. And that the reason he brings us back to that idea, look with me in verse 11. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart it's so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So Solomon says he has made everything beautiful in its time. When someone makes a right decision at the right time, it's a beautiful thing. Right? When the right thing happens in the right moment, that is a, a beautiful occurrence. When you make the right investment for your portfolio and you're able to retire more comfortably, that is a, a beautiful thing. Right? When you choose the right career path and you find something that, that you love to do that pays you well, like you, that is a beautiful thing. Right? When you marry the right person, that is a beautiful thing. Right? When, when, when you bring a, a child into the world, that moment is a beautiful thing. When you're at a, a funeral and, and, uh, and you are celebrating a life well lived and, and the emotions and the atmosphere of the funeral is the right mix of, of sorrow but also celebration, that, that is a beautiful thing. When you choose the right college like Texas A&M, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Ash and Skyler, take notes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> When you make wise decisions, that, that is a beautiful thing, right? When, when things are done in the right way at the right time, God has made it so that that is beautiful. It produces good, beautiful, wonderful things. And he says in verse 11, also he has put eternity into man's heart. The idea there is that God has made it so that we want to make the right decisions. We want to know the future. We want to know the past. The idea is that we want to be connected to the future and the past. We want to be able to see the consequences of our decisions. We want to be able to know the past so that we can know that we are making the right choice. We want to make the right decision at the right time. We want to have the ability to do that. Animals aren't thinking that, right? Non-human beings are not considering whether their action is the right one to do at the right time. They're just acting. But God has placed eternity on our heart. He has given us the, the mindset and the understanding that we, there's something bigger than just us. And so we want to make the right decision at the right time. We want to be able to know the future. We want to be able to know the past. But notice what Solomon says. This is his gripe. God has placed it, eternity into man's heart, yet he has placed it so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So Solomon's gripe is that God has given us a desire to know the future and to know the past, to make the right decision at the right time, and yet God has also made us trapped in the present. 
He, also, he has not given us the ability to know for a fact what the future holds. And we imperfectly remember the past. His gripe is that we can't actually know the right time and place to do things. We can't know for certain that the decision we're making is the right decision because we don't know the future. We are, we are trapped in the present. We, we are trapped in today, in this moment, right here. And because of that, we can't be certain or positive that the decision we're making is the right one. Even when you're, when you're pretty certain that this decision is the right one, that this decision is a good decision, you're going off what you think is going to occur in the future. You're going off the probability that what you think is right, but in, in reality, we can't know. We are trapped in the present. I, I don't know if you guys have been to an arcade or a, a place like main event where they have this game where you can win prizes where uh, it, it's a game where there's a little, a little uh, line, a bar, that's bouncing on the bottom of the screen, going back and forth, and you press a button and you stop the bar, and then the next row up, there's another bar that appears, and you have to try to stop the button right when it's on, or press the button to stop it right when it's on top of the bar that you just placed, and you're trying to go up and up and up to build this tower, right? So you're trying to stop the bar at just the right time. You're trying to press the button to stop it at just the right moment. If you press it at the wrong time, and there's part of the bar that's hanging off, that part gets dropped, and the bar keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter, on the way up to the tower, and eventually you lose when you miss the tower altogether. So when, you're, when you just miss the bar, it falls, your game is over. And depending on how high you get is how many, how many prizes you can win or how good the prizes that you can win. And, and Solomon is saying that life is like that game where there's a right time to press the button, right? There's a right time to, 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 to press it where you, you have to get it just right, and God has made it so that there's a right time and a wrong time to press the button. But Solomon is pointing out here that life isn't like playing that game. Life is like playing that game blindfolded. Life is like having your eyes covered and then trying to figure out when you're supposed to press the button <laughs> and trying to time it just right without being able to see the screen. And where you have no way of actually knowing for a fact that you're pressing it at the right time, but you're just going on, on kind of educated guesses based on the sounds the machine is making. Maybe you're going on your gut feelings, but you're pressing the button just trying and hoping that you're pressing it at the right time. That's more what life is like. And we, go, we, we know that because we, that's how we approach decisions. We make it on instincts. We make it on gut feelings. We make it on information and data trying to predict the future. But we can't know that we're making the right decision at the right time. Everything has a time and place. God has made it so that that's true. But he's also made it so that we can't figure out what it is. Because we are trapped in the present. We can't know the proper time and place for the things that we do. Solomon builds on his argument. The second thing he points out is that we can't change the order of the cosmos. God has made it this way, and we can't change that. Look with me down in verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks that which is driven away. So the, the language there is the idea that God has made things how they are. He has created the order of the universe. He sustains the order of the universe, and, and we can't change that. The way things have been is the way things are going to be. 
right? God created the order of the universe in this way, and it's going, he's going to maintain that order in the future. We can expect that what's been in the past is what will be in the future. That, that language there at the end of verse 15, that God seeks what has been driven away, that language there is the idea that, that what, has, what has been lost in the past, God's just going to bring right back around to the future. Like, the way things have been is the way things are going to be. We can't change the fact that we are trapped in the present. We can't change the fact that we can't know the future or that we imperfectly remember the past. We can't change the order of the cosmos. That is in God's hands. That is in God's prerogative. That is his choice. And the reason that Solomon includes that in this chapter is because he's blaming God for the state of things. He's saying, look, I'm trapped in the present. I'm trying to be wise, but I can't know the future. And God, you're the one that made me this way. You're the one that has made the world the way that it is. And he's voicing all of his frustration and he's blaming God for all of it. And he continues in his argument down in verse 16. The next thing he points out is that we can't see past death. It's part of the way that we're designed. It's part of the way that that God has, has made the universe. We can't see past death. Verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So Solomon is looking at the world. He says, there, is, there are people that are making bad decisions. There is unrighteousness in the world. There is wickedness in our court system. There are people that are getting away with crimes. There are people who are convicted of, of crimes that, uh, that, are, that are innocent. Uh, there is unrighteousness. There is wickedness where there should be justice. And there is unrighteousness and wickedness where there should be righteousness. There is sin and brokenness in the world. And Solomon says that that, that is against God's design. God has made a right time and place for everything. And where there is unrighteousness, where there is sinfulness, where there is brokenness, it is people rejecting God's decision, it is people rejecting God's authority, and it's them doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so because we believe in a God who, who has a sense of justice, we, we know that God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked. He's going to set things right. He's going to, to judge them for their bad decisions. And Solomon says, he's looking around, he says, is that day to day? No. There are unrighteous, wicked people who are getting away with it. And there are righteous people who are being treated poorly and nothing is being done. So today clearly isn't the day that God's going to fix it. So that sets up the idea that one day after death, there's going to be a judgment. That after we die, there will be a judgment where God will judge the righteous and the wicked. So Solomon says we know that that's true. That there's going to be a judgment because we believe in a God who makes things to where there's a right decision at the right time. And he's a God of justice, so he's going to judge the wicked. He's going to judge the righteous. There's going to be a judgment. But notice what he says in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. 
So Solomon says that we are, are looking forward to the day that there's going to be a judgment between the righteous and the wicked. We know that that's a day that's going to be in the future and it's going to be after death. But the reality is that when we look to that day and our sense of justice, our desire for there to be justice, when we look to that day, we can't see it clearly. And the reason that we can't see it clearly is because there's this impenetrable curtain between us and that day, and that curtain is death. We can't see past our death. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. We can't. based on If we're just looking at the world, if we're just looking under heaven, we can't figure out what happens after we die. Because if all you're doing is looking at the world, then humans are just like animals. We die, we decompose, and, and, and he says if all we're doing is looking at the world, who knows whether the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the beast go into the, in, into the earth. Who, who can possibly know what happens after we die? Because we as humans are trapped in the present. We can't know for certain. We can't see what's going to happen. We can't see beyond that curtain, beyond the grave. We can't know that for absolute certainty if all we're doing is looking at the world. So Solomon says, even in our pursuit of justice, even in our thoughts about the afterlife, we can't be certain because there's this curtain between us and them. We, as humans, are trapped in the present. And if it's true that we are trapped in the present, that we can't know that we're making the right decision because we can't know the future, and, and we can't know what's going to happen after we die because we can't see beyond our death, if it's true that we're trapped in the present, Solomon says that we should just enjoy today. The, the, the end result, the implication, is that we should just enjoy the present because that's apparently where we're trapped. <laughs> Look with me in verse 12. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So Solomon's point is that if all we have is today, if we are trapped in the present and we can't know the future, we can't see beyond death, if that, if that is true, that all we have is today, then carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Live in a way that, that you, you just take what comes at you. Just whatever, your, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, enjoy it because that's it. That's what you have. That, that is Solomon's conclusion and the reality is if we live in a world where God is a maker and not a savior then that's a very perfectly fine way to live your life if we live in the world where all God did was make the world and let it go then Solomon has a valid point that, that we we can't see beyond today we are trapped in the present and so if our God is just a maker and not a savior then you might as well just enjoy today because that's all that you know that's all that you're guaranteed and you and I, when we, when we, when we think this way, uh, we are affirming that we see God as just a maker and not a savior. You and I, this, this thinking isn't foreign to us. There are times when we live in a way that, that is just living for today. Our mission statement as a church is that we are a family of faith living for eternity today. And the reason that that's our mission statement is because so many people in this world and so many of us live for today. 
We live as if the present is all that we have. Like we are trapped here and we can't know what's before us and we imperfectly know what's behind us. And so we just enjoy today. And that is a thinking and a mentality that has invaded so many of our lives and so many of the way that we approach the, the decisions that we make. We're just thinking about today. This is the same mentality that, that we take every time that we sin. Because every time that we sin, we're not thinking about the future and the consequences of our choice. We're not thinking about the past and any past consequences of sins. We're just living for the moment. We're just indulging. We're just sinning. We're just doing what we want to do at the time. It is living for today. So you and I adopt this mentality all the time. And it's a mentality that's okay if God is a maker but not a savior. The reality is, here's the eternal perspective, and this is what I hope that you will see this morning. So the gospel connects our lives to God's eternal purpose. If we are disconnected from the gospel, then you might as well just live your life today and enjoy the moment because that's all your guarantee. But the gospel is the story that connects our life to God's eternal purpose. The gospel is the story that tells us that there is a God who is eternal, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, who is filled with love and grace and goodness, and from him he created the world. Out of an overflow of his creativity and his goodness and his power, he created the world and he created humanity, and he didn't just create us as, a, as, a, as an art project. Like he created humanity to have a relationship with him. The gospel is the story that tells us that he, he made us to have a perfect, beautiful, wonderful relationship with him where we, where we pour out grace and joy upon him and he pours upon us love and kindness and goodness and, and peace and joy for all of eternity. That's what God made us for. Beautiful, wonderful relationship with him. And the gospel is a story that tells us what went wrong. That we as humanity rebelled against God, that we sinned against him that we rejected his rule and his authority, and we decided to do the wrong things at the wrong time. We decided to reject him and to follow our own hearts, follow our own passions, follow our own desires, and to reject his rule over us. But the gospel is the story about God deciding he wanted to set everything right, about God loving, enough, uh, loving us enough to, want to restore us to a relationship with him where we can once again experience the joy the love and the peace that he provides, where we once again can bring him the glory and the honor that he's due, where we can be restored in that relationship. And all of the Old Testament points forward to the message of the gospel that comes through Jesus, that God's plan for redemption is in his son, Jesus Christ, that his son, Jesus, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and he died a death on a cross as a sacrifice for you and me so that our sins could be forgiven, so that our rebellion against God would be covered over by his blood. And he rose again from the grave, showing that there is hope and life in him. And that by having faith in him, by placing our faith and hope in Jesus, we can be restored in our relationship with God, and we can be restored in, as humanity and as the world back to where we were supposed to be. And the gospel is the story that Jesus isn't done, but that he's coming back. To, to get rid of all brokenness and sinfulness and, and, and pain in the world. He's coming to get rid of all of it and to restore the world back to the God's beautiful, wonderful design. And that we can have a part in it as citizens of his kingdom if we will put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. The gospel connects us to that story. 
The gospel reunites us with God. It restores our relationship with him and reunites us to what he's doing in the world and through, through his church. It, it, it unites us with his redemptive purposes. It unites us into his kingdom, and it allows us to experience his kingdom, not just today, for all, but for all of eternity. It allows us to know for a fact that we have, home, we have a home in Jesus. It allows us to see past that curtain of death with crystal clarity that we know where, what awaits us. It is an eternal kingdom in God. Eternal kingdom that we have through faith in Jesus. So when we're making decisions as Christians, we're not making decisions with imperfect information. We're not making decisions with, a, with an imperfect view of the future. We are making decisions knowing for a fact what God is doing in the world and what he will do. And we may, not, we may not always make the perfect decision. We may make wrong choices, wrong decisions here and there, but as Christians, as people who are united with God is doing, the gospel allows us to see what we should do, to see the decisions and the choices that we should make and to walk according to those. It allows us to see that we need to live in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus. Because everybody who exists in the kingdom of God is going to bring glory and honor to Jesus. It allows us to see that we need to love one another and pour out grace and kindness on one another because that's what the kingdom of God is like, because that's what God is like. It allows us to see that we should do good, beautiful things that help and, and build up others because that's what God does. He's a God who creates life and gives help and encouragement, not a God who tears down. Sin tears down and destroys. God brings life and joy. So we as Christians, when we're united with the gospel, when we place our faith in Jesus, we are, we are connected to the story that God has been writing for all of eternity, and we can join in it. We can stop living for today, trapped in the present, and we can start living for eternity with our eyes fixed on what's going to come. There's this wonderful story about a woman in the, in the late second century named Blandina. Blandina was a, a, a servant. She was elderly uh, and frail, uh, and, but she had come to place her faith in Jesus. And in the late second century, it's where the persecution of Christians at a, at a, lot, of, uh, a lot of the Roman Empire had really hit its, hit its height. And, and Blandina, like I said, had placed her faith in Jesus, and the woman that she served had recently placed her faith in Jesus, and so they were rounded up with people as they were cracking down on Christianity. They were rounded up, and they were taken to prison, they were tortured, and the, the thought was that they wanted to get them to apostatize, to turn away from Christianity, Christianity, to reject the faith in order to keep their lives. And, and the woman that Blandina served was worried about Blandina because she was worried that in her frail state and in her weakened body that she wouldn't be able to endure it, that she would give up easily. And so they were rounded up, and they were tortured, and, and so many people were tortured and killed. And the, the historian Eusebius, he tells us the story that Blandina was put through so many tortures that they were amazed that she survived them all, because any one of them would have killed any, a, a, a normal person. But in all of her tortures, Blandina held true to the faith. And there's another wonderful story where, where Blandina, after all of these tortures, she was brought into the Colosseum and she was set before wild animals. The wild animals were to come and were to tear at her skin and they brought her and a 15-year-old boy together because they would not 
turn away from the faith, and they tied him to a pole, and they said wild animals out, and the wild animals would not touch Blandina. But as the young boy was dying, he looked over at Blandina, and he saw her faith. He saw her confidence in Jesus and allowed him to die with, with confidence in Christ. And it strengthened him in his persecution. And Blandina, after all of these persecutions, after all of these struggles, this is what the writer Eusebius tells us. The blessed Blandina, last of all, having as a noble mother encouraged her children and sent them before her victorious to the king, endured herself all the conflicts and hastened after them glad and rejoicing in her departure, as if called to a marriage supper rather than cast to wild beasts. And after the scourging, after the wild beasts, after the roasting seat, she was finally enclosed in a net and thrown before a bull. And having been tossed about by the animal, but feeling none of the things which were happening to her on account of her hope and firm hold on what had been entrusted to her and her communion with Christ, she also was sacrificed. And Plandina put up with all of the, the turmoil and the persecution, all of the suffering that she endured because she had her hope firmly fixed on Jesus. She had her eyes firmly fixed on heaven. If she was living for today as if she was trapped in the present, she wouldn't have endured any of it. She would have easily given up because all she wanted was to avoid the pain and persecution. But she had her eyes firmly fixed on heaven, firmly believing she was a part of something much bigger than herself. That her life was far beyond just what was today, but her life was beyond, that was joined to what God was doing in the past and what God will do in eternity. And she had her eyes fixed on what awaited her after she died. And she willingly suffered and, was, and, and endured. And she held firm to the confidence in Jesus. And at last she died, receiving her reward. We are to be a church of people living for eternity today. A church of people with our eyes firmly fixed on Christ, firmly fixed on eternity, not trapped in the present, not stuck looking at the things of the world to fill us up, not stuck looking at sin and the things of the world to try to make us happy, but eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing that we are not trapped in the present. We are part of a work that God has been doing and that God will do forever, and we can enjoy and experience him for all of eternity. So this morning, for those of us who know Christ and have placed our faith and hope in him, we need to stop letting the things of the world distract us. We need to stop acting like we are trapped in the present, and we need to make decisions that align with what Christ has for us and what Christ has for his kingdom. We need to make decisions with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, firmly fixed on the eternity that awaits us. And if you do not know Jesus, then, then I, would, I, I would caution you with the fact that you are trapped in the present. That all that Solomon says is true, that you are living a life filled with, with meaningless work and, and, and things that do not have value and purpose. And when you die, you will spend forever separated from God in hell because you've rejected his authority, you've rejected his rule. And you do not have a life that is joined with what God has been doing and what God will do because you haven't placed your faith in Jesus. So this morning, I would encourage you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, to join with God by placing your faith in Jesus, by believing in the gospel, putting your faith and hope in him by lifting your eyes up from the world and trusting in Jesus for the very first time. Just a second, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. If that's you, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, 
while we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. I'd love for you to come. I'd love to pray with you, and then I'd love to talk with you after the service about what it means to follow Jesus. We also have people in the back who would love to talk with you about what it means to, pay, to, to place your faith, hope, in Jesus if you don't want to come to the front. And if you don't want to get up, you don't want to walk, that's perfectly fine. Do not leave here without grabbing me, grabbing Gordy in the back. Do not leave here without grabbing somebody here and asking about how you can place your faith in Jesus and how you can know the confidence that Blandina has and the confidence that we can have in Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your eternal kingdom and the, the, the eternal glory that awaits us. Those of us who have placed our faith and our hope in you. God, I thank you that we can live lives that, that aren't just trapped in today, but we can live lives that are connected to what you're do, you've done in the past and what you're doing in the future. God, that we can live lives that aren't just trapped looking at what's around us, aren't just trapped enjoying and, and celebrating what we have right in front of us, but lives that can see a bigger picture, lives that can see greater things that are happening, lives that can join into your work and keep our eyes firmly transfixed on you. God, I pray this morning for anyone here who does not know you, anyone who does not have that hope and confidence that come with Jesus Christ, God, I, I pray that this morning you would, you would show them their, their temporary nature. You would show them how trapped they are today, but that they can have faith and hope and confidence in Jesus. God, I pray this morning would be the morning that they are rescued from their temporary entrapment, and this morning would be the morning that they would come to know you. God, I pray that every single one of us would live with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. God, that the decisions we make, the choices we, uh, we choose, God, that we would have our eyes firmly fixed on you and make those decisions and make those choices out of what you would want us to do. Father, we love you and praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.